Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11. When life gets hard, our natural instinct is to try to get immediate relief from that difficulty. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But the problem comes when God doesn't agree with our plans, right? We, we have uh, written a certain script for our reality. We've, we've got certain desires and plans and dreams. We've got certain thoughts in our mind about how we think things should go down, and we think things need to turn out a certain way, and then we give those things to God, and then what happens? Nothing. Nothing changes. And the thing that you desperately wanted and the thing you desperately longed for does not come. And it's in times like this where it seems like God is ignoring you or that He doesn't care. Uh, That maybe He has even abandoned you in your suffering. Maybe some of you are even struggling in that kind of situation right now. And if not, uh, there is a chance that such a struggle is right around the corner when that next trial comes into your life. And that next trial will come into your life. And so, friends, it is no accident that you are here this morning. God has a word of encouragement for you in this moment. So, with that said, please stand with me now. I know we've made you stand up quite a bit this morning, but please stand with me one more time out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. John chapter 11. We'll start right at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. The Apostle John writes being carried along by the Spirit of God. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Him, saying, Lord, He whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when He heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where He was. Then after this, He said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to Him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met Him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would not have died. 
But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Let's pray. Father, this is a powerful Scripture that You have given us this morning. Father, I pray that You would have mercy on me, a sinner, a, a weak and flawed and imperfect preacher. Father, I pray that You would have mercy on all of us in this congregation, weak and feeble and unwise, left to ourselves. Father, help me to preach the Word rightly. Help my brothers and sisters this morning to hear the Word rightly. And Father, do through Your Word what I can't do, which is change lives. Help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We left uh, chapter 10 last week on somewhat of a cliffhanger. Uh, the, the, the tension between Jesus and the religious authorities uh, it has come now, it's culminated to an all-time high. We saw last week in the last chapter how Jesus contrasted Himself with the religious authorities by declaring Himself 
to be the good shepherd, that he himself is none other than the God of Ezekiel chapter 34, who promised to personally come and deliver his sheep, deliver his people from false shepherds, from religious hypocrites who were using and abusing the sheep for their own selfish gains. And Jesus made this climactic statement in chapter 10, verse 30. He said, I and the Father are one. And it was at that moment, the text tells us, that his opponents picked up stones seeking to execute him for blasphemy, for daring to claim to be deity. And the chapter concludes with Jesus escaping from their hands and withdrawing across the Jordan River. That's where we left Jesus last week. But our text today opens with a summons to Jesus from some dear friends to return to Judea, which is going to then lead to Jesus' greatest sign, His greatest display of power before the cross. It's the raising of Lazarus. And so we start out our text this morning with the plea of Jesus' friends. The plea of Jesus' friends. Look at verse 1. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So we're introduced to a family here that is very dear to Jesus. Uh, now, we know a little bit about this family, uh, piecing together some things from some other, from some other gospel accounts. Uh, some of you may be very familiar with the story where, where, where Jesus is uh, at the house of, of Mary and Martha, and, and we see Mary, who's kind of a type A personality, uh, and she's, uh, she's in the house, and she's serving, and she's cleaning, and she's cooking, and she's really irritated at her sister Mary because her sister Mary's not doing anything. Actually, we find out she's doing the best thing. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his teaching, and Jesus commends her uh, for that. Uh, and and uh, uh, we are introduced to that family in that uh, particular story. Here they are again uh, in, in chapter 11. Uh, these, uh, these folks would have been uh, in the circle of Jesus' closest friends. And Mary is seen as one who really treasured Christ in an exemplary fashion. Uh, her, her deep affection for Jesus will be especially seen in the next chapter, which we will look at next week, Uh, But the Apostle John previews that event here in verse 2. He says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His feet with her hair. Apparently, evidently, by the time John writes this gospel, uh, that story about Mary's devotion is so well known in the early church that he can write write about that before he actually describes it in chapter 12 because everybody knows what he is talking about. Now, at the end of verse 2, we discover that Lazarus is severely ill to the point of death. And in verse, in verse 3 tells us, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, this message that they send to Jesus isn't simply for informational purposes. This isn't a news update. It is really a desperate plea for help. Martha and Mary send this word to Jesus, fully expecting that Jesus is going to do something about this that he will, uh, he will drop everything and come and minister to them and heal their dying brother. Uh, we, we see later on in this story how you can see what their expectations are. Both of them, both of the sisters say, Lord, if you were here, if you were here, my, my brother still would not, he would not be dead. He would be alive. Now, it's not an unreasonable expectation for them to think that Jesus is going to respond Very often in Jesus' ministry, when the sick were presented before Jesus, Jesus would heal them immediately, even if they were total strangers. 
So surely you would think that he would come quickly to the aid of this one whom Jesus would have regarded as a dear friend and as a brother. Surely he would come to minister to these struggling sisters right away. I should add that what Martha and Mary do here is absolutely right. They, they bring their burden and their extreme need to Jesus. That's exactly what you and I should do when we are in need and when we are in distress. Scriptures tell us to cast our anxieties on the Lord because He cares for us. And notice also that these sisters plead with Jesus not on the basis of their love and devotion to Jesus. They don't say, Lord, uh, the one who loves you is ill. They, they don't say, uh, Lord, we love you so much, so therefore, come and help us. Instead, they plead with Jesus on the basis of His love for Lazarus. That's the right way to approach Jesus. When you pray, when you bring a need to Jesus, don't come to Him on the basis of your faithfulness, on the basis of your love, and on the basis of your righteousness. Your love for Jesus is fickle and flaky and shaky. And so is mine. Sometimes your love burns hot for Him, and sometimes not. Instead, approach Jesus on the basis of His love for you, demonstrated by the blood that He shed for you on the cross. And when you do that, you'll then have great confidence in your prayers if you know that His response is not based on your love for Him, but on His perfect love for you. So, these sisters of Jesus, they seem to be doing everything right. They turn to Jesus, they see Him as the only one who can meet their need, they base their request on Jesus' love and faithfulness and not their own. And so how does Jesus now respond to those that He loves? And that leads us to the puzzling response of Jesus, the puzzling response of Jesus. You would expect that as soon as Jesus hears about His beloved friend, as soon as he hears about the distress of the sisters, that he would immediately drop everything and go to them and give them comfort. That's not what Jesus does. Instead, he says in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. And in verse 6, he stays put for two whole days. That's strange. One of you came up to me and said, uh, said, Deemer, uh, uh, Toby is really sick. Toby is really sick. He, he's down at, at Gwinnett Medical right now, and, and we don't know if Toby's going to make it through the night. You tell me that, and, and I just stay where I am, and, I'm not, and, and I say, he'll be all right. And, and I don't do anything about it. You would regard that as callous and cold, and that, that I don't care about my friend. Jesus doesn't rush to Bethany. He, and he doesn't he even speak a word of healing for Lazarus. We saw in chapter 4 that geography is no barrier to his power. He can heal long distance if he wants to, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't heal Lazarus, and he doesn't rush to be with his friends. Instead, he delays. And only after Lazarus has died does Jesus say, okay, now we're going to Bethany. And the disciples are perplexed by this response. Jesus isn't making any sense. When Lazarus was still alive and suffering, Jesus does nothing. When he does die, Jesus says, okay, now let's go. And all the while, the disciples are also thinking about those religious leaders in Judea who want to kill him. 
and by implication, kill them as well. And Jesus says, don't worry about that. He says in verse 9, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, my life is in the Father's hands. It's still daylight. We still have work to do. And I'm not leaving this world a minute sooner than my work is completed. And then he says in verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciple said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death. They thought he had meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Now, again, that's another puzzling response. And, and, and so it seems that, that Jesus is just distancing himself from this situation. Why is Jesus glad? Does Jesus really care? And if Jesus really does care, why didn't he intervene? Why did he delay? Why did he let Lazarus die? There may be some of you in this room this morning asking similar questions about things going on in your own lives right now. Sometimes we pray and we are puzzled and we are perplexed by God's response. There are times when we struggle and we go through a trial and we plead with Jesus for relief and for deliverance. Lord, heal this sickness. Lord, please restore this broken relationship. God, please relieve me from this financial burden. Father, please give me a spouse so I don't have to go on single. Jesus, please give us children so we can build a family. Jesus, please heal this marriage. Please give me a new job. We pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and it seems like the heavens are like brass, that our pleas are not being heard, and that we are being ignored by Jesus. Much like it may have seemed to Mary and Martha that Jesus was ignoring them. When that messenger that they had sent to Jesus, he came back without Jesus. While the hours slip by and their brother is slipping away, as they look out the window expecting to see Jesus at any moment in the distance walking towards them quickly and coming at the last minute to save the day. And the hours turn into days, and by now, Lazarus is is long dead, and Jesus is still nowhere to be seen. And sometimes we may wonder if Jesus really cares about us and cares about our pain. But this story teaches us that even when Jesus delays, even when He does not respond to our need the way that we think He should respond, Jesus is not distant. Jesus does care, and Jesus has a good reason for everything He does and everything He doesn't do, which leads us to the purpose of Jesus in suffering, the purpose of Jesus in suffering. God has a revelation for His suffering saints this morning, and the first revelation is in verse 4. When Jesus heard it, He said, the illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This is critical to know. The suffering of Lazarus was not an accident, 
The suffering of Lazarus didn't mean that Lazarus was sinning and did something wrong and, and, Lazarus, and God was getting back at Lazarus. didn't mean that Satan had the upper hand or anything like that. Instead, there was a divine design in Lazarus' suffering and in the trial of Mary and Martha. Lazarus would indeed die. But what Jesus means when he says this, this illness would not lead to death, what he means is, is that the end goal of this illness is not death. The end goal is the glory of God. That through the suffering of Lazarus and through the suffering of Martha and Mary, there will be put on display glorious things about Jesus that otherwise would not have been seen. That was the purpose for their suffering. And that is one of God's designs in the sufferings of His people today, including you. Because in our sufferings, in our afflictions, in our weaknesses, there are things about God that, that will be made manifest as we faithfully suffer, things that otherwise would not be put on display. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians, Paul, who is no stranger to suffering, he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, by treasure, he's talking about the, 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 the knowledge of the glory of Christ seen through the gospel. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay simply uh, talking about just his weak, fragile, imperfect body. You have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? Because God is mean? No. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the, so that, purpose clause, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Or consider Paul's thorn in the flesh described in 2 Corinthians 12 which many people think was some sort of a, a physical affliction. Whatever it was, it caused Paul great distress and suffering to the point where he beg, begged God several times to remove that thorn. God said no. Right? Paul had a, had a certain, certain idea in his head, a certain preference about how things should go down in his life, and he takes that to God, which is the right thing to do. But God vetoes that. God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Friends, when we are weak, and some of you feel very weak this morning, when we are weak and when we are laid low, guess what? It is easier for us to get out of the way so that God's glory may shine all the brighter in our lives, so that His strength may be made all the more manifest in our lives to a watching world. Now, if anyone is being laid low in affliction, it is Lazarus, literally. So sick that his life ebbed away with his corpse now beginning to rot in a tomb. Yet, in the midst of the trial that this family is going through, God has a glorious intention. And in verse 15, when Jesus tells His disciples that he is glad that he wasn't there to heal Lazarus as everyone expected him to do. He isn't glad because he's mean and cruel. He says, I'm glad so that you may believe. One of 
one of those purposes Jesus has in this situation is for the increase of the disciples' faith. Sometimes the suffering that we go through is for the sake of others as people see the power of God at work in our lives. So if you're going through suffering this morning, whether that be physical or relational or emotional, yes, pray to Jesus. Yes, ask Him for deliverance. But then... Ask God that if He does not glorify Himself through the removal of your affliction, ask that He would manifest Himself in the midst of your affliction, that the Son of God may be glorified in you. So we see one purpose of Jesus in His delay to come to Lazarus was glory. We also see another purpose in verses 5 and 6, and this really goes hand in hand with glory. In verses 5 and 6, we read two sentences that on the surface don't really seem to fit together. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Did you catch the strangeness of those two sentences? Did you see that all-important word there? That word that connects verses 5 and 6 is the word so. Now, now some translations have tried to soften that. There's some translations that put the word yet in there. That's really not the best translation of that word from Greek to English. So really is what should be there. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so. Therefore, because He loved them so much, He did what? He delayed. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, that kind of doesn't make sense, just that first blush. That, that can actually be shocking, because our instinct is to think that if Jesus really loved them, he would go immediately and minister to them. He doesn't do that. But John says Jesus' delay is not due to coldness. It's not due to callousness. Rather, it is actually a manifestation of the love of Jesus towards His suffering friends. While it is good and right for Mary and Martha to plead with Jesus in their need, it was also good and right and loving for Jesus to delay and to not answer their request in the way they thought it should be answered because Jesus had something better in store for them than what they were asking for, namely, a greater manifestation of the glory of Jesus. And such glory could not have been revealed had Jesus answered their prayer the way they wanted Him to. Jesus doesn't always answer our prayers the way we want Him to, but guess what? He always answers in the best way possible. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this about prayer. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Friends, whenever you pray, whenever you make a request to Jesus, and whenever you don't get exactly what you asked, 
Guess what? It's not a stone. If Jesus ever gives you a stone, then Jesus just lied here in Matthew chapter 7. But if Jesus is telling the truth, which He is, then if you are God's child through faith in Jesus Christ, you can know with confidence on the basis of Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 7 that God is going to deliver to you good things in response to your prayers every time. He will always give you exactly what you asked for or something better. Guaranteed. And so even when it seems that God is responding to your prayers, to your request in a strange way, in an unexpected way, uh, maybe even in a disappointing way, remember the words of the song we just sang, that last song, God moves in mysterious ways. And, And the song says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Now, that can be hard to believe when it seems like whenever we pray, nothing good is coming from it. That's why the hymn goes on to say, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. In other words, don't don't try to use your own little human limited mind to figure out and unravel what God is doing. His ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. The point is that everything that God does is for the good of His people, and even when He delays, it is a delay of love. John Piper writes, so what is love? What what does it mean to be loved by Jesus? Love means giving us what we need most. And what we need most is not healing, but a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Love means giving us what will bring us the fullest and longest joy. And what is that? What will give you full and eternal joy? The answer of this text is clear a revelation to your soul of the glory of God. Seeing, admiring, and marveling at and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ, that's what you need the most. And when someone is willing to die or let your brother die to give you that, he loves you. Now, that should revolutionize our lives and our thinking about what we need the most, shouldn't it? We have been trained to think that what we need the most is health and wealth and comfort and prosperity and ease and a life in the suburbs. That's the American dream. But the Scriptures are showing us that our biggest need is actually to see and savor Jesus Christ. That's our biggest need. And so if God not answering my prayer the way I think He should answer it will result in me seeing and savoring Him more... If God ordains a season of suffering to help me get to that place, it's worth it. But I wonder how many of us trust Jesus enough with our lives to really believe that and count on that and pray for that. God, help us to believe it more. But now Jesus, after two days' delay, 
in his perfect timing, returns to Judea. Uh, the sisters wanted Jesus' help and ministry, and they are about to get way more than they could have ever hoped or dreamed for. That's how Jesus regularly works in the lives of his people. And so we come to, well, we've seen the plea of Jesus' friends, the puzzling response of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus in suffering, and the power of Jesus over death. Jesus goes to Bethany, and we see Martha Martha playing the type, right? Martha is the active one. She's the, the go-getter. She's the, the type A person here. Martha's the one who comes out. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You can hear the disappointment in Martha's voice. She was fully expecting Jesus to, to do something about this. She expresses the same disappointment that probably all of us have felt at one time or another, where we beg and plead with God for something, and yet He does not respond the way that we had hoped. Mary continues in verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. <clears throat> Some teachers think that here Martha is anticipating that Jesus will raise Lazarus. That, that She's kind of asking for this in a roundabout way. I don't think that's what's going on here. Because how this conversation and the rest of the story plays out takes us in the opposite direction. Remember, uh, uh, a little later on, Jesus says, take that stone away. And Martha's like, no way, he stinks. That, that doesn't sound like somebody who is anticipating a resurrection. But what Martha is doing here in this statement is affirming her continued faith and her trust in Jesus, even though Jesus has not come through for her the way that she had hoped. She still hopes in Jesus. And in that, Martha is exemplary. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, if Martha here were expecting and hoping for an immediate resurrection miracle, you would think that Martha would say, yes, I'll take you to the tomb right now. But that's not how she responds. Instead, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha doesn't quite get where Jesus is going. Jesus says Lazarus is going to rise, and Martha gives him theology. Martha shows him that she's got her eschatology down. Yes, Lord, I know all this stuff about a resurrection in the distant future. Tell me something I don't know. And Jesus does. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Folks, theology is good. Doctrine is good. We need those things. But in the end, doctrine and theology in and of themselves cannot save us. And Jesus' challenge for Martha is for her to not simply affirm the truth she learned and memorized in vacation Bible school as a little girl. Or should I say vacation Torah school? Instead, the challenge is, is for her to embrace not, not simply theology or, 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 or dogma, but, but the person of Christ, to, to put her hope in Him. Friends, we, we have, we have so-called Bible scholars with PhDs in universities that are lost. And they know all of this Bible. What they need is not knowledge. 
but a person. Jesus is saying, Martha, you are seeing the resurrection as merely a thing, as a date on your eschatological calendar. But what you need to realize is that ultimately what you need is me. Sound doctrine and good theology only matter because they are bound up in the person of Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no resurrection. There is no life. There is no future last day where all of God's people will rise. None of it is true without Christ. And so he challenges Martha by asking, do you believe this? Not do you believe in these propositional facts, but do you believe in a person? Do you believe me? And that question is still the most important question in the universe. Very often in our evangelism, we, we talk to people about how they need to become a Christian so that they can avoid hell, uh, so that they can get to heaven when they die. Uh, they need to become a Christian so they can break free from sinful addictions. Uh, don't you want eternal life, we say? And by eternal life, often what we mean is simply living forever and ever. And we treat Jesus as merely a hoop that you need to jump through to get to these other things that we really want. But living forever and ever is not the gospel. People will live forever in hell. Getting off of drugs and alcohol is not the gospel. A 12-step program can help you do that. That's not eternal life. Ultimately, what people need it is not some sort of higher power to help them manage their dead lives better. What they need is a person to resurrect their dead lives. What they need is Christ to be their very life. According to Jesus in John chapter 17, the definition of eternal life isn't going to heaven. The definition of eternal life is knowing the only true God and knowing Jesus Christ. And so in the gospel, Jesus is not offering a thing. Jesus is offering himself, and he turns Martha's eyes towards himself, and he says, do you believe this? Verse 27, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now again, we see the love and the wisdom of Jesus and ordering this whole situation in such a way that now Martha's faith is greater than it was when the chapter began. This trial that Jesus has lovingly allowed her to go through has brought Martha to the point of this wonderful confession where she can see more than ever that Christ is what she needs more than anything else, that Jesus is to be her very life. Verse 28, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, these Jews in verse 31 who are with Mary and following her around, they would have been professional mourners. Professional mourners. Now, every, every culture deals with grief in different ways. And in our culture, uh, we're typically pretty reserved about, about these sorts of things, right? We're, we're very, very, very quiet, very stoic uh, when, when it comes to death and when it comes to, to grief. 
And, and many cultures around the world, even today, and, and certainly in the Jewish culture back then in the first century, mourning was a big deal. It was a sign of great respect, and everyone was expected to hire mourners just to increase the intensity of the experience, right? We, we are reserved in our mourning. They let it all hang out. In fact, even the, the poorest of families was expected to hire two flute players and one professional wailing woman. So then, if things get a bit quiet, the wailing woman and the, and the flute players, they would stir things up a little bit, help the flow of tears to come out more, and kind of get everyone back into mourning. It was their way of dealing with grief and sorrow in the wake of death. Now, this family may have been on the wealthy side. We'll get a hint of that in the next chapter. So they may well have had a very large contingent of these professional mourners really going at it. And it would have been quite a scene. And when Mary leaves the house, this whole noisy throng follows her, thinking she's going to the tomb. Verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet, saying to Him, Lord, if You had been here... My brother would not have died. Verse 33 says that Jesus was deeply moved. A better translation, again, this is, this is where sometimes translations, English translations soften things. A better translation would actually be that Jesus was angry. Uh, I heard about a German translation that translates this as outraged. And that's really the essence of the Greek word. So why this response? What's, what's happening here? What, what is it that triggers this indignation, this outrage? Verse 33 tells you what triggered it. It says, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Jesus is not, I don't think Jesus is outraged that mourning is going on. Mourning is appropriate. Instead, Jesus is outraged because He is beholding a scene that has the stench of death all over it. The crying, the mourning, the musicians playing dirges, the piercing screams that would have been so typical of first century Jewish mourning, the gut-wrenching pain and heartache. Jesus is standing there and in that moment, He is witnessing the ravages of an enemy that He hates. B.B. Warfield said that it is death that is the object of His wrath, and behind death, Him who has the power of death, and to whom He has come into the world to destroy. Jesus looks at this gripping scene and he sees something that was unleashed into the world through the sin of man. Death is a sign of the curse. Death is a sign that humanity has rebelled against God and through his sin has cut himself off from the very life of God because the wages of sin is death. And this sin and this death has polluted God's good creation. And it twists and poisons the capstone of his creation, which is man. And Jesus hates it. His indignation that God's glory has been assaulted fuels his anger. And he is outraged that the dark power of death 
has ravaged a family that he dearly loves and a people that he has come to save. And he's indignant, and he's going to do something about it right now. And he says in verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? These professional mourners don't get it. They they misinterpret Jesus' grief as as mere sentiment, as a kind of grief that, that is identical to everyone else's grief. But folks, Jesus isn't going to the tomb to pay his respects. He isn't going to the tomb as a mourner, but as a warrior. He's going to the tomb to confront an ancient enemy and to bring a level of glory to himself which will release a joy in Mary and in Martha and in Lazarus that they would have never known had they gotten their initial prayer answered and Jesus would have immediately healed in the way that they thought he should. And when Jesus stands before that tomb looking death in the eye, he gets angry again. Verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb... It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by, by this time there will be an odor. Here, here's where I like the, uh, the King James Version. King James Version says, he stinketh. He stinketh. I like that. By this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. The, the, the Jews did not embalm people, so decomposition began immediately. And this, this aspect of Jesus' timing here, uh, of showing up after Lazarus has been dead for four days, uh, th- this may also play into his delay and why this is going to be a faith-building and Jesus-glorifying experience, because, because it was a, a common notion amongst the Jews at that day that when someone died, that the, that the soul of that person would, would, would hover over the body for, for a couple of days, for two, three days. And I'm not saying that's, that's not true. It's not biblical. I'm just saying what they thought, okay? Uh, and they believe that. But then after about three days, uh, the, the soul kind of gives up and, and leaves the body, and there's absolutely no chance of, of resuscitation, resurrection, or, or anything like that. So, so Jesus waits now to, to the very point that in their mind, in their thinking, this is, this is just, we're in an impossible situation. We're at a point of no return. So Martha protests. Jesus says to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! Now, I've heard it said that the reason why he didn't say come out, now he had to say Lazarus' name, is because Jesus' voice has so much power. There's some other tombs in that area. And if he just says come out, we're going to have a little party here with a bunch of ex-corpses. No, no, he's very specific here. Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. 
as Jesus calls forth Lazarus from the grave, it is a graphic illustration of who Jesus is. He is the resurrection, and He is the life, and all who believe in Him receive that life. But the resurrection is also pointing us to something more. Because if all Jesus came to do was heal some people of disease, if all He came to do was give some sight to some blind people, if all He did was raise a handful of people from the dead, Jesus would have failed in His mission and you and I would be forever damned. Friends, all of those people that Jesus has helped and healed throughout the Gospel of John, the official son in John 4, the paralytic in John 5, the blind beggar in John 9, and all the others, all of these people eventually died, even Lazarus. Lazarus died again. Death is still in operation. And, and for Lazarus to get up on that last day, as Martha talked about, for him and for all of us to rise up and to never fall down again, something more needs to happen. For death to fully and finally be dealt with, the thing that unleashed death in the first place, which is sin, must be dealt with. And the evil power who led mankind into sin in the first place, the devil, must be crushed. And so what we see in John 11 is a great victory. It really is. But it's not the final battle. Instead, what we see in John 11 is a warning shot. It's a shot across the bow of the forces of darkness. It's a sign to the powers and principalities that their demise is at hand. And it's a preview of greater things to come. Friends, what you and I need is not simply a healer, but a hero, a champion, a representative to fight death in our place. We need a man to slay the enemy on behalf of men. And the way that Jesus would defeat death for Lazarus and for you and for me would be for him to become a man and do what other men could not do. And Jesus would come and defeat death by dying. He would take on death on death's home turf. He would go into the grave by willingly laying down his life on the cross as a substitute, paying the wages of sin on behalf of all who trust in Him. He would take on the curse of sin and death itself. Folks, while you and I may sometimes feel abandoned by God in our suffering, we never truly are. Not one of God's people have ever been abandoned by God in their suffering, except for Jesus. He bore the curse. He took the wrath for our sins that were placed on Him, and Jesus' cold corpse was the final sign that our debt had been paid. But because Jesus was not a sinner like us, death was not the end of the story. Because Jesus was not a sinner like us, that abandonment by God was only temporary. Because the last thing that Jesus said 
But one of the last things that he said was, it is finished. It is finished. And so then, unlike Lazarus, Jesus would raise himself from the grave. Jesus said, I have the authority to lay down my life, and I have the authority to take it up again. And unlike Lazarus, who who shuffled out from that tomb wrapped up in grave clothes, unlike that, stumbling and tripping out, uh, 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 coming out under the power of another, Jesus will emerge from His tomb in His own power with great glory, thereby killing death, crushing the devil, and releasing all who believe from His power why Jesus could say with confidence to Martha in verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That's for Lazarus. And he can also say in verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's for Martha. When the body of Martha one day fails and enters into the tomb and her heart stops beating, it's not the end of the story. Her life actually doesn't end. It goes on and on and on. Her fellowship with the Lord Jesus will never be broken. It will actually be enhanced. That's why the Apostle Paul is going to say later on, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It only gets better because the thing that has separated us from God, sin, has been dealt with through the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's a word of encouragement for all of us who will one day face death should the Lord tarry in His return. And so, and I'm almost done, the author of Hebrews says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death, we're subject to lifelong slavery. You and I can face death with confidence because Jesus has gone before us and He has defanged death and He has broken the teeth of Satan. So, should you and I enter into our own graves before that last day, we have great assurance of something better to come. Jesus says elsewhere that we will hear His voice calling and the tombs will open, and we will rise. He will call our names. He will say, Toby Larson, come forth. He will say, Jeff Thomas, come forth. He will say, Katie Pierce, come forth. He will say your name, and you will come forth to the resurrection of life. And unlike Lazarus, we will never see the grave again. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to God. Let's pray.